This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. It's not too up to the Minister of Heritage or the government to decide which news organization will be included. Respectfully, though, you've set up the parameters through which they will be chosen, right? Your government has set up this process, has outlined the parameters through legislation by which all of these decisions that you claim to be so separate from will actually happen. So are you as separate as you claim to be? Of course. Oh, yes. As I said, I'll give you the example. We're setting up the table where the parties come and, and, and negotiate. And we're really arm's length. We're not there. We're not involved. The criteria will determine which platform is included, which media outlet is included. And CRTC will be monitoring that. But there's a very limited role because it's not the CRTC that at the end of the process does a final arbitration. There's a group of, of people that are chosen both from the platform and the news outlets. They put in a group and then they pick three of them that will monitor the, 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 the final negotiation. So we're not there. So, so if it's so independent and if, if uh, the government will have no role in this, why is this legislation even necessary? This week, Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez introduced Bill C-18, the Online News Act, the second of three planned internet regulation bills. There's much to unpack about the provisions in the bill, including the enormous power granted to the CRTC, the extensive scope of the bill that could cover tweets or LinkedIn posts, the provision that encourages the internet platforms to dictate how Canadian media organizations spend the money at issue, and the principle that news organizations should be compensated by some entities not only for the use of their work, but even for links that refer traffic back to them. Sue Gardner is the Max Bell School of Public Policy McConnell Professor of Practice for 2021-2022. A journalist who went on to head cbc.ca and later the Wikimedia Foundation, she is the only Canadian and first woman to have run a global top five internet site. She joins me on the podcast for a terrific conversation about journalism, the internet platforms, and Bill C-18. Sue, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. I'm really glad that you that you've come on. You know, you've had an incredible career both in and around journalism and the internet for more than two decades. Can you get us started with a quick tour of your career path that I know is included heading CBC.ca and the Wikimedia Foundation? Yes, for sure. Yeah. So um, I worked at the CBC for 17 years. Um, I worked in radio. I started as an intern at As It Happens, and I worked at This Morning and Sunday Morning and sort of the big major current affairs shows. Uh, and then I worked in television mostly. It was what was then called News World. And then I moved over to the internet stuff in, I think, 1999 or maybe it was 2000. Um, and I ran CBC.ca. That was the last job that I did at the CBC. And then in uh, 2007, um, I took the job running the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the US-based 501c3 that operates Wikipedia. And when I joined them, Wikipedia was actually in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. And so I moved them to San Francisco. And that meant I was in San Francisco at the tail end of 2007. And it was such an interesting time to be in Silicon Valley because I think it was the time when uh, we were moving out of um, sort of 
startups and, you know, invention and, and everything being kind of bonkers, we were moving from that into what I later uh, decided to call the consolidation phase, right, which is where the kind of monopolies and near monopolies grew up and everything kind of started to get cemented and kind of permanentized, if that's a word, which it isn't. Um, and we moved into a space where, you know, there were these new incumbents and they were kind of buying up their rivals and stuff like that. I worked for the Wikimedia Foundation for seven years. It was an incredibly interesting period in the history of that part of the world. Um, and at that time, towards the end of my time at the Wikimedia Foundation, we were starting to see uh, some of the harms of the new technologies um, starting to become visible to us. And I mean, you know, we had Ed Snowden's disclosures. Um, we eventually had Cambridge Analytica we had we were starting to see women um, and racialized people getting kind of pushed out of public discourse and out of public spaces. We were seeing what I think later came to be called the automation of inequality. Like the harms were starting uh, to become visible to us, and it was also becoming clear to me at that same time that uh, Wikipedia was going to be a unique thing, which was not clear to me when I joined. I think when I joined, I expected that there would be a lot of things like Wikipedia would start to develop. And what I mean by that is kind of like essentially public service organizations, right? Like, like things that were creating public goods. I think when I joined Wikipedia, we all thought there were gonna be a lot of things like that. And it was becoming clear that Wikipedia for whatever weird constellation of reasons came into being and was going to be singular. There wasn't gonna be something else like it. Um, so uh, I left the Wikimedia Foundation about 2014, 2015, um, and started digging into, I wanted to dig into what was happening to the internet, because it was so fascinating, it was all just taking shape. Um, and so I became a Berkman Fellow, and I joined a bunch of boards, uh, Privacy International and organizations like that. Um, I co-chaired the campaign to ask uh, then-President Obama to pardon Ed Snowden. Um, and I just got interested in all this stuff about the shape that the internet was taking, which brought me around to kind of vaguely um, the policy space, right? Like what are the policy implications of that? And what do you do when these powerful technologies are, are causing some serious harms? Um, and then I learned that Canada was seeming to be on the cusp, Canada, which had been hanging back, right, had not been sort of grappling with this stuff, had not been regulating things. Um, it looked like Canada was starting to lean in, which indeed has happened, right, um, and was starting to make some sort of consequential steps and decisions about how to grapple with this stuff and how to create public policy um, that would be good. Um, and so I decided to come back to Canada because I wanted to help influence that. And so about a year ago, um, I got back and I've taken a position at McGill. So I'm with the um, the public policy school, the Max Bell Public Policy School at McGill this year, which is helping me get my head around some of this stuff too. So that that is a as short as I can do capsule summary. Well, that's a good that's, that is a good summary, and you're definitely landed at a good place at the right time because we've got now multiple pieces of legislation up in the house c11 which we've talked about on this podcast already several times the the, the follow-on to c10 we had this week in the budget copyright term extension and we had this week as well which we'll talk about bill c18 the online news act and given your experience obviously 
for many years in the news sector. It's, uh, you know, you're the perfect person to come on and talk a bit about the bill. But but even before we get into the specifics of this legislation, let's talk a bit about the, the challenge that the news sector has faced. You know, what are some of your views as you've seen this evolution on the importance of a sustainable, independent news sector? I think it's worth um, sort of articulating, right, like why this stuff matters, right? Like why does journalism matter? Um, because journalism doesn't matter particularly, right, as a, as a jobs issue or a kind of economy issue, right? Journalism doesn't matter because journalists themselves matter. Journalists matter because of the work that they do and the, and the, the, the idea that they help us create an informed citizenry, right? So you have journalism and then people know what's going on in the world around them and they're engaged in it and they're thinking about it, at least at some sort of base minimal level, right? And that matters because that is essential for the functioning of a healthy democracy, right? So where the, the elected representatives are responsive to the people. And so that's why it matters. It's, it's not a jobs issue and it's not a money issue. It's their particular role that they play um, in society. And we all know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this at great length, but like we, we all know what has happened to the journalism industry um, since, you know, the advent of the internet. And I think that sort of correctly pinning down and articulating properly what has happened um, is important when you start thinking about the policy implications, right? Um, and this bill, I think, comes out of some views on what has happened that 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 are not quite right, that are not quite correct, right? So should we unpack those? Do you sure. Why don't, why don't we go there? Uh, what okay. do you see as, as the issues that we should be trying to address or think about? Right. I mean, I mean, what we should be aiming to do is having more working journalists in this country, right? Um, more people creating thoughtful, relevant, useful news um, for people to read and to consume. That's the public policy goal, right? Because that is what creates the informed citizenry. Um, what has happened to the news industry is, you know, the bottom fell out of the business model for news, right? And so we have lost a whole ton of working journalists. And, you know, I've been gone, I was gone for 15 years, I think. And you come back and I don't know how visible it is to you because maybe you are a frog in boiling water, but, but it's very visible to someone who hasn't been here. Like when I left, the Globe and Mail was a big newspaper, a big hefty newspaper. And I come back and it is very, very small. It is pamphlet sized, right? And you can see there's a kind of, there's been, what is a kind of hollowing out of the big journalistic institutions. They're still there and they still look very impressive and they still have impressive nameplates and things like that, but they are much thinner in terms of their actual resources, right? And I think we can see the harms of that, right? If you look at kind of the state of where we're at, right? You know, we have anti-vaxxers and we have people who don't believe in science and we have conspiracy theories running rampant and we have this enormous decline in trust in news institutions. And you can't lay all of that at the feet of like the money problem, the business problem, right? Because there are a lot of contributing factors to that. And you alluded a second ago, right? The platforms play, play, have, have played and do play a role in that. 
with the algorithmic amplification of like divisive content and stuff that is hyper-partisan and very polarizing and it's, you know, exciting and outraging. And so it gets amplified. That's a big component of it, right? There are many components um, to why we're in this situation, but one of the components is the fact that we have so many fewer working journalists in this country than we used to have. And so that's a piece, right? There are a number of problems, number of things that want to get addressed and fixed. And that is one of the pieces, right, is that we're missing the number of journalists that we used to have. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I think the government will get into this bill in a moment, but the government just before this bill had introduced and still has several programs that have been launched in response. The local journalism initiative, which actually is really designed to hire journalists, the labor tax credit to make it more affordable to hire journalists and a digital subscription tax credit to you know, lighten the load for potential subscribers and ease the transition to digital. You know, what are what are some of your thoughts on those programs? And I suppose the challenge of balancing government support with with another really important part of journalism, uh, which, of course, is the independence of the press. Right. And, you know, when when I look at those initiatives, and I think I've read some of your writing on them. Right. And I think the sense I've gotten from your writing is that your view might be um, they haven't had time to prove themselves. Is that roughly what you think? Like, like they haven't fully played out the implications of those? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, they're, they're operational. And certainly the, mm-hmm. the LJI initiative for people who are paying attention to some of the bylines will see oftentimes articles that have been written with that express support. Uh, but yeah, it is early days. And I think it's fair to say as people do their taxes, they they may be eligible for some of these digital subscription tax credits, although I'm not sure that that's really having, that's really moving the needle much at all. Right. And I think that's what I think when I look at this stuff and it is early days, I buy that. But when I look at it, like I know, for example, I don't know how, I don't know how this plays out in Canada, but I know that in the United States, because I ran a nonprofit there, um, hardly anybody claims their tax credit, right? Like rich people claim their tax credit, but the tax credits aren't really a motivating force for ordinary people, right? Who are giving like $100 to the Humane Society or whatever. And I would expect it would be somewhat the same with like digital subscriptions. It's not going to prompt you to change your behavior necessarily, if you even know about it, right? So I think they're, you know, I think they're worthy initiatives. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea to try a bunch of things, but I don't think that they're going to, like like the scale and the scope of what has happened is so large, right? The hollowing out is so massive. It's like a complete collapse really, right? Especially at the local level. And so I feel like the scope and scale of the problem probably exceeds, even with time to play out, probably exceeds the scope of these initiatives. Okay. Well, certainly the media sector agrees because they've been pushing for several years now for more intervention, particularly, and it's what they've gotten now, uh, intervening to get the large internet companies, particularly Google and Facebook, to provide greater support for the sector. And those companies have been striking deals with many media companies, but uh, they're obviously still looking for more. Now, we know that much of the digital ad market is dominated by those two companies. What's your view on their relationship with the news sector? You know, we've seen even the minister and others talk, uh, talk about this issue as if you know, news has gravitated to the platforms, the platforms generate advertising, and you sometimes see people talk about it as if they've stolen the ad market and they're mm-hmm. stealing stealing the news in order to do it. And so there deserves to be compensation. How do you see that relationship between the platforms and the news sector? 
Right. And I think this is such a central question and it's such a huge question. And I feel like I'll, I'll tell you how I see it, but I'm also going to tell you how I think it is seen by others. Right. I think there's kind of three maybe views on it. Right. And the first one is the oldest one. And the first one is the view that has been around forever, right, which is the idea that the mostly Google and also Craig Newmark, people like Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, to a lesser extent Facebook, but that when the internet came along, folks like Google broke the business model for news and like ruined it for everybody, right, like just wrecked everything and are morally in some way responsible, right? And that worldview, I think of it as kind of like the you broke it, you bought it model, right? And it's like your Sergey and Larry were in an antique shop and they knocked over a vase and broke it. And now they have to not only pay for the vase, but they also have to pay for all production of future vases, right? Because they wrecked things. Um, and that argument has always been made by news publishers, especially in the early days, right? And I understand why people would emotionally feel that way, right? Especially when you tie it up with stuff like, you know, the hubris and the recklessness sometimes of the platforms, the sort of, you know, move fast, break things. It kind of ties really neatly into that. So I can understand why people emotionally go there and sort of feel like, yeah, they're the bad guys and they have all this money, all of that. I understand that. But in reality, um, we know <laughs> that technical innovations happen and folks develop new ways of doing things that are better, right? And when that happens, things change and there are winners and losers. And that is just part of like how history plays out, right? So it's inappropriate, right? to feel that Google and Facebook are morally on the hook for the continued existence of the news industry and more so even the restoration of yesterday and these organizations' former glory. That is inappropriate, but it is emotionally a thing that I think people still do feel. And I wanted to ask you, like, I haven't heard that argument. I feel like it got put to bed about 10 years ago but I do feel echoes of it in this bill. There's some language around fairness that kind of resonates with that worldview. And so I'm kind of curious, like, is that worldview still around? Like, do people still believe that? Are they making that case, like, explicitly? Well, I think when you have legislation, and we'll talk about some of the specifics in the bill in just a moment, but I, you, when you have legislation that essentially says not only is our companies like Google responsible for reproduction of the news, which I think a lot of people would mm -hmm. say, yeah, sure. If you make a full copy of, of a work and you put it on your platform and you're benefiting from it, well, of course you need to pay. That goes, this legislation goes much further. It talks about linking to the news right. on, on a third party site. And then it actually goes even further than that. It talks about facilitating access to the news. Essentially, right. you've got a search index that lists all the Canadian newspapers the fact that you've got links just to the just to the site, not to a specific article, that alone mm. is seen as making that news content available and is viewed by this minister and by this bill as being compensable. I personally mm. think that's outrageous, but I think that's actually pretty consistent with what you're describing. It's basically saying it's not as almost nothing to do with whether or not you're copying any news because this legislation doesn't go to that go there. It goes mm. far further to basically saying your model of making people aware of even the existence of these 
news organizations is itself mm. something that ought to be compensated. That feels a lot like the you broke it, you bought it sort of argument. Right, 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 right. And there and there's a <clears throat> there's a sort of a variant on that, which is the the sort of notion, because you know, I've been I've been trying to tease apart what what is the premise underpinning this bill, right? Like what is the worldview that it represents? What you know, and, and the fairness language again kind of speaks volumes, right? There's a premise or there's a potential premise, which is, you know, more more just business, right? Which is the revenue share is unjust, right? The again, fairness language, right? Um, and so in that worldview, the argument would be that the platforms are benefiting, you know, they get to use the new, they snip it, whatever, they showcase it, they they put it in a carousel, whatever, right? They are linking to it. Um, and that provides value to them, and they are not sharing a sufficient amount of that value um, with the people who are producing the news. Um, but if that is the argument, that argument is supported nowhere, right? Like, like nobody is making that case explicitly and sort of providing evidence for that case. And that would be a hard case to make, you know, in a, in a in a market where it's parties negotiating with each other, why the government would need to step into something like that is a little bit harder to understand, right? Um, and then I think there's 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 what I think the relationship is, and 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 what I think the relationship is between the platforms and the news publishers um, is that the news pub the platforms are now performing part of the role that used to live inside the business side of journalism organizations right so it was the case that if you wanted to sell someone a product you could go to, you know you could put an ad in the local newspaper the supper hour tv show wheel of fortune whatever you had a a, a fixed choice of options and you couldn't do a lot of targeting it was pretty you know a broad brush um, and then the internet came along, audiences started moving to the internet, um, advertisers want to be where audiences are, and the internet was much more fragmented. And so even the fact that now I'm a car dealership and I can make my own website and I can talk directly to prospective buyers kind of disintermediates. I don't need an intermediary anymore. I've got my own website, right? But when I do want to advertise, Google and Facebook have created tools for me that add a lot of value to me, right? I can micro-target a specific group of people. There's a whole set of, you know, privacy questions around that and how good is that for society? But but that as an advertiser, that's fantastic, right? It's great for me. And so that's where I'm putting my advertising dollars. And that's just a simple case of, you know, historic technical innovation new affordances new capabilities making your product attractive and so of course you're going to go and spend your money with google and facebook right and some of that money does go back to the publishers and so to me the correct relationship between the two organizations is i'm google and facebook i'm 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 selling ads on your behalf right and you are getting some of the money and I am getting some of the money because I am adding value myself as an organization. Um, and I don't see the government as having any particular role in that relationship, right? Um, and so and so that's why I'm interested in the question of like, like, and I wish it were more explicit, right, in the text, but I'm interested in the question of like, what is the premise that underpins this? Because like you, 
I do get echoes of that old you broke it, you bought it argument. Um, and then and then some echoes, I guess, of the second worldview being it's sort of unfair, like 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 Google and Facebook have too much money. And of course, none of this is helped by the fact that Google and Facebook are, you know, public sentiment is not super favorable, particularly to Facebook right now, right? And so it's sort of tempting, right? to look at those two organizations and just say, oh, you know, they have a million billion dollars and we have this very, you know, this industry that is kind of in free fall. And it, it seems very neat, right? To just transfer the money from the one to the other. But, but the premise of it, the way in which it's structured um, has some challenging implications, right? Which I'm sure we will get into talking about compensation for links, right? Which is obviously super problematic. Yeah, no, I mean, it, uh, that's, a, that's a, a really interesting take. I, I, I am left to wonder at times how much of this is policy driven, how much of it's just pure politics. You know, Australia is, is cited as a model for, what, for the Canadian approach and, and it's quite clearly had quite a lot of influence in that regard. But in, in the Australian situation, of course, Rupert Murdoch has an enormous amount of influence in that in that country so that it's kind of a battle between in some ways you know the proverbial Murdoch versus Zuckerberg and the whole you know the home team won and so you were going to go mm -hmm. with uh, you were going to go with Rupert Murdoch's interests and here in Canada we don't have Murdoch although in theory his Wall Street Journal could qualify for this system but what we do have are a series of, of larger players who are likely to give and indeed did give in the immediate aftermath of this legislation, really positive uh, press, right? I mean, even some of the most critical newspapers of this government were all on board of this legislation. No surprise, they spent three years lobbying for it, uh, which, of course, raised the question, if you're from a political perspective, is this driven by by policy? Is it justifiable policy or is it simply viewed as good politics because you get to uh, criticize the large platforms and even the newspapers and the press that have typically been critical of you are going to be applauding you at least for a moment when it comes to this legislation. Right, right, right. And I mean, that that's like one of the things that I think about, have you ever read Tim Wu, um, The Master Switch? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I, I think about that book all the time, right? I read it in 2010. I read it in 2011. I've read it probably every year. Um, and I think he, his book is explanatory in this regard too, right? Because like one of the things, like like what I find interesting about it is that, you know, like I feel like the the interesting and complicated conversations that are like genuinely difficult are the ones about what do we do with the platforms, their new capabilities, their negative externalities, the various harms they're causing. What do we do about those? That is hard. I think that is hard. But when I think about this um, bill, it seems to me it is explained by Tim Wu. <laughs> and what, what it is, is it is, um, you have a bunch of established organizations, they're institutions, they're large, they're august, they are well-established, they've been around for a long time, they have people in Ottawa, they know who to talk to, they're rooted, right? And it's a fight, exactly as you said, it's a fight between Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg. And I think, as you said, right, 
public sentiment is not at this moment on the side of Mark Zuckerberg. And Mark Zuckerberg is not a hometown boy the way Rupert Murdoch is or the way our Globe and Mail is here in our country, right? So again, I can see how it would be really tempting, but it's very, very problematic because the effect that it has, if you pick the Rupert Murdochs of the world, right, and you choose to really, you know, prop up institutions that, you know, are rooted in a different time, right? And I think that this bill <clears throat> does that at the expense of the upstarts, the young sort of digital native things, right? You're, you're not deliberately, but you are accidentally casting, or maybe not, but you're accidentally casting a vote for the past, right? And holding back the future <laughs> and and you can't win with that right like you can't you won't win against change you just will sort of slow things down and that's not a helpful policy objective that doesn't get us anywhere good i think yeah, no i and, and i think that the, that notion that this is backward looking as opposed to an approach that tries to really you know encourage innovation and there are many digital news startups in canada like quite a lot of them were, were not in line to try to lobby for this. In fact, they're deeply concerned about the implications of being, as you suggest, rooted in the past. You know, why, mm -hmm. why, don't, we, why don't I get into the, the bill a little bit? I'll, I'll outline the, the yeah. basic model and then just ask you a few, some of your thoughts about it. So, so the basic model is the, we've got the CRTC involved in this, in this legislation too. The government sees the CRTC as playing it's really a massive oversight role when it comes to the internet and almost all things digital of late. So in this instance, they're going to oversee a system which identifies really identifies two sets of companies. One, the platforms, um, which are called in this legislation digital news intermediaries. And to be a digital news intermediary, a DNI is to have a significant bargaining power imbalance as opposed as when you're bargaining with some of the news, the, the news side of the equation. On the other side are the news businesses, they're called in the legislation, eligible news businesses. It can include, I think, notably Canadian and non-Canadian businesses. So in theory, we could be talking about the New York Times here or Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal. Now, these eligible news businesses can force a bargaining process, either individually or in a group. And that leads us to two different possibilities, either a deal where the content gets, uh, where the, the use of the content, including as we already mentioned, links um, is licensed. Although that agreement has to be approved by the CRTC and the CRTC mm -hmm. has a whole series of criteria in the relationship that in the bill rather that they have, that they will use to determine whether they should approve that, that private agreement. Alternatively, if they can't reach a deal, it goes to binding final offer arbitration. And there are even rules there about the kinds of offers that can be made as part of that arbitration process. So that's the, the rough framework of what the bill has in mind. The heritage minister was asked about this when the bill was introduced earlier this week and insisted that this was a market-based approach. Um, do you agree? Or what are your thoughts generally about that approach? Right, what, what, do you think, what do you think is meant by market-based approach? What do you think he was meaning to say? Well, I think, I think he's gaslighting is what I really think, because I, when I take a look at this, this bill, the, the government or through the CRTC has shaped everything here. They've decided what an agreement 
must look like, what to, to even be approved. They decide who's eligible to participate in this process. They've even said that certain kinds of offers within arbitration can't be made. So for example, hmm. if the platforms and the businesses have a different view of the value of links, the platforms have argued that these are free referrals that are actually represent value that goes to the news businesses. The news businesses turn around and say, no, 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 you need to pay us for linking to our content even if we were the ones that posted the links in the first place, it, it appears that the government wants to even stop the platforms from making that argument in final arbitration. That might be seen not as a, as a fair offer in final offer arbitration. So I look at all of that and to suggest that somehow that's a market-based approach, I think is to laugh. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's as interventionist as, as you could possibly get in the sector, it seems to me. It's a thing, right? Because like, <clears throat> when I look at this bill, like I, I, I don't, I don't have a sense. There, there is, there is not a clear articulation of the policy goal for it, right? I mean, I've heard the minister speak verbally about it, right? But in the text of the bill, it doesn't paint a picture of what it's trying to accomplish and and why, right? And I think that. It speaks to, and I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm seeing this with um, some of the other initiatives the government has underway on this front. There's a kind of uncertainty, a kind of timidity, right? A, a lack of confidence in the approach. And I feel like that is what is implied to me by like this market-based idea, right? Because I can see why the minister would say that um, in the sense that it's too private, largely private sector, um, institutions, right? It's like Google talking to the globe or the post or whatever, right? Um, and I can see, you know, we we are standing back and we are allowing these market actors to market, right? Although, of course, as you say, like they're they're intervening, right? They're not allowing like the market to do its thing. But um, to me, a a, a a different approach would be that you paint a picture of what you're trying to accomplish and then you just chart your course and you do it, right? Like you just mandate. Like I was listening to um, the head of Google News talking the other day. Um, this was before the bill was announced, but he was talking and he was saying that in the deals, and, and of course we don't know what goes into the deals, right? Because there's no requirement for them. And as you said, you know, they're being made and they've been being made for months in anticipation of this. Um, we don't know what is going into them because there's no requirement for them to be transparent. Their terms will not be transparent. They will not be public. But Richard was talking about how um, he is echoing or trying in the structuring of the deals to echo some of what is in the local um, news initiative um, around um, what kind of journalism is tried to be encouraged or something to that effect, right? Um, they're also using um, some measure of audience size, right? So he's trying to sort of echo um, some of what Google sees the Canadian government as wanting to be encouraging, right? And something like that to me suggests that something is wrong here, right? Because it isn't the job of Google, right? To try to implement federal government policy or try to anticipate or try to copy over and, and, and adapt to and align with um, the planks in what the government is trying to encourage, what kind of news, et cetera, right? 
there's there's a fuzziness here. There's there's a discomfort. There's an awkwardness. I think around roles, right? Um, and it's it's you know, do you remember like like back in the day? I don't know, two thousand seven, two thousand ten, whatever. Um, when when Google was doing things like Google flu, the kind of heat map of where the flu is, and it was like, oh, wash your hands because the flu is near you. Um, Back then in those days, people often used to talk and act as though they expected Google to be some kind of benevolent overlord who would help us, right? Google would lift us out of poverty. Google would tell us what we were going to get the flu. And it was always really confusing to me. I would go to conferences and people would be talking about that stuff. And I was always very confused because I thought, you know, Google's a private sector actor. Like, it's going to stay in its lane. It, it has a job to do, right? Um, it does that job in a way that creates a lot of benefits for a lot of people, right? I think Google is fantastic, um, but it, its job at the end of the day is a private sector. The governance job at the end of the day is to create a policy vision for the country and try to anticipate what the people want and need and, and, and try to create, you know, a, a healthy, high-functioning society, right? That is the governance job, not Google's job. And I feel like in this bill, there, there's a muddle, right? Like, what is the goal here? Is the goal here, um, you know, to, it, is, it, is it jobs-based? Is it economy-based? Is it to ensure, you know, that we have journalistic institutions don't continue to fall apart, just keep them going, prop them up? Or is there an actual vision here? And like one would hope that there would be a vision. And if there was a vision, for the future, for what we want things to look like, I think this would look quite different, right? And it would it would be focused much less on the legacy players. I mean, I'm saying stuff that's fairly obvious. It would focus less on the legacy players and it would focus on the people who are doing the experimental work. And the hope would be that those people would eventually figure out business models that are sustaining, right? And that are profitable and that would be fantastic. And, you know, maybe there'd be a complex ecosystem, which is a mix of nonprofits and profitable enterprises and so on. But you'd want to be driving towards that future. And that's what I feel is the missed opportunity here. And that's why I guess to me it feels timid and it feels hesitant because it hasn't, for whatever combination of reasons, um, it hasn't felt able or was not, is not able um, to really chart a course and paint a picture of what it wants things to look like. It, it feels like it doesn't have the confidence to do that. Well, I think it, what, what it wants is to satisfy the groups that have lobbied for the last three years to say that what they want is more money. And if there's money in the platforms, then get us that money. And so that's, mm. uh, to me, that's, that's really the goal you know, we talk about institutions and institutional oversight. It's the CRTC here. And you haven't been in, you've, you were out of Canada for a while, but you obviously would have had some amount of interaction or awareness, certainly of some of the CRTC related issues, especially back in your days at the CBC. How well suited do you think the CRTC is to provide oversight for this? Uh, con conventionally, it's of course, focused on broadcast mm. and telecom, not the news sector. Yeah, I mean, there is that, right? There is an expertise question, which is exactly that. And then there's just a sort of more generic question, which is around, you know, like, this is a tough thing. Like, I don't know on what basis, um, you know, I don't know on what basis you would you would criticize or call out or change or demand changes to these deals. It's not clear, right? Right, although there there are some, and I mean, that's that's actually also sort of worth talking about it a little bit here, because as I mentioned, in order to get the exemption, if you have the deal, 
it is the CRTC mm -hmm. who has to has to grant approval and there are criteria that it has to consider but here's where it seems to me it gets a, at least a little bit awkward and, and i think probably even more than just awkward it's actually the internet company that has to demonstrate that the deal meets the criteria so to give you an example mm -hmm. one of the criteria is spending on local and regional journalism so you've got to show that in fact you're spending it which is precisely what you were saying needs is one of the things that needs to be happening here so it's obviously a laudable goal but it's the government requiring the internet companies to make the case that that's mm. what the news organizations are going to do with their money which mm. in effect is suggesting that it's going to be google and facebook as part of these deals that are going to dictate how post media or the globe or whoever strikes the deal actually spends the life the the money that they obtain through these through, through these negotiations how would, they, how would they audit that i mean how would they know would the companies be required to report back to Google and Facebook on their activities? Well, that's a great question. It's it's hard to know precisely other than it may well be that the requirement would be that in the agreement, there would be mm. uh, there would be the need to specify how some of that money would be spent. But, mm. you know, the if you're trying to build up the strength of, let's say, Canadian media, do you do it by granting the power to Google mm. and Facebook to dictate how the money that they're receiving gets spent. Right, right, right. That's the role confusion that I was talking about, right? It's it's like that is not their function. It's not only not their function. I mean, in some ways, it seems to me the risk is that at a time when you're concerned about the power of these companies, you're actually making them even more powerful in the Canadian news sector. Not only is there a reliance on their money, but they actually get to tell you how you get to how you have to spend it in order mm. to make sure that they qualify that this deal qualifies for CRTC approval. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, quite remarkable. Lastly, why don't we talk about this idea of linking and facilitate facilitating mm -hmm. access? You know, I mm. guess what which, you know, the minister was asked specifically about this, I think, by Evan Solomon, and, and the minister's view was, yeah, links provide value, in this case, not value back to the news organization, but he said value to the Facebooks and Google, and they ought to be paying for links. What's your take on on the the value proposition with links, or even more, just that basic notion of value being paid for having facilitated access to the news in some way? Yeah, I mean, you know, so let me tell you a tiny story. Um, when I worked at the CBC, when I was running CBC.ca, part of my job was to help coach, or not coach, but support. Um, news executives in in coming to better understanding of digital, right? And this was back when everything was very new. And so there, you know, we didn't know a lot. Nobody knew a lot. It was all very emergent. But part of my job was to help them understand stuff um, as head of CBC.ca. And we used to have, you know, at the CBC, there were a lot of big meetings. And I remember <laughs> very clearly having a meeting maybe in about 2005 with senior CBC News executives. And the point of the meeting was they were asking me if there was any way that we could prohibit other websites from linking to cbc.ca content, right? And that was bonkers then, and it's still bonkers now, right? And so like, I, you know, and, and I mean, it was understandable then, it, you know, cause it was 2005, it is less understandable now. Um, and I think that 
I don't like it when activists, you know, when people use the phrase break the internet, oh, it's going to break the internet. I feel like that phrase is like super overused and not actually very explanatory, but linking is the internet, right? And compensating for links as a principle, it does, there is no other way to say it. It does break the internet. It breaks everything. And what, why, or, why would linking to news content be considered differently from linking to any other content? If, if linking was to be compensated, right? Why wouldn't all linking be taking value? I guess is the premise that you're taking value from somebody, you are profiteering off their stuff. That would be then true presumably for everything that Google links to, right? Like, why wouldn't it be? It doesn't make sense that news would be special in some way. Um, so no, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's a terrible precedent to the extent that it's any kind of a precedent. Um, and it just, it's, it's anti-openness and it's anti-access to information, right? Like what you wanna do and the great thing about the internet is that it has reduced friction. It makes it easy to wander around and hop from thing to thing and learn all sorts of stuff. That's, that's its great triumph, right? And that is why it would break the internet because that capability is, is good for us. It's good for people. It's a wonderful thing, right? And so anything that constrains it or introduces friction to it is, is counter to what we want, right? It's not to our benefit. No, I, I, you certainly gonna get, aren't going to get an argument from me. It's, uh, I think, deeply discouraging to see the government move in that additional direction. One can, as I say, understand that, that there's, a, there's a, a compelling case. In fact, I would say that the platforms have recognized it with some of their deals, that if they're reproducing in full or if they're granted mm -hmm. exclusive access, those are the sorts of things that get compensated. Compensating for links and as I say, this goes even beyond just li li direct even links to news stories. It's even just a basic link to the homepage of the website itself is arguably caught by the definition mm. that the government has. Uh, I don't know that's, that's necessarily going to break the internet, but it's undoubtedly going to cause both cause these companies first to think twice about what they link to and their involvement in this process. And the precedent that it sets is indeed one that, you know, if news, as you suggest, says we should be paid for linking to us, one can well imagine some other different sectors popping up saying, hey, wh why shouldn't we be paid too? Right. And it's a funny thing because the argument is that news is special, right? Because we need it. Um, but the truth is that from the platform's perspective, news is such a tiny part of 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 what they what they the array of things that they offer to people right that news isn't it's a rounding error i'm sure right it's not significant from the perspective of the way that they make their money right and so any disincentive to link to news material is bad for the public because it reduces our access to it yeah no and i think that that issue around access to information access to the news one hopes will become part of the debate and discussion with this bill. You know, why don't we close with this? You've, you know, I think you've offered some really, you know, insightful comments, both on, on the sector as a whole, the role of both news and, and the platforms, as well as on this bill. You've provided a few hints about it, but, you know, what do you think we should be doing to encourage innovation and new entrants? You know, there's the vision, the broader vision and the policy goals that the government ought to be better articulating. 
but if if you know if you were granted the pen with the chance to to draft some of some of this legislation, <laughs> what are the kinds of things that you might be thinking about? Right, right, right. And you won't like my answer. I do not think you will like my answer. That is fine. <laughs> Reasonable people can disagree. Um, but I think like the most straightforward thing to do, I think, I think, I think, um, you know, I think that the platforms have resigned themselves to the idea that they are going to pony up money, right? Google particularly has been doing it voluntarily for years, right? Like with a variety of mechanisms for distributing money. Actually, Facebook has more recently too. Um, and I think they've resigned themselves that, that for a variety of reasons, they're going to have to pony up cash. That's great, right? Because cash is necessary. And so I think um, what, what the simplest and most straightforward um, way to handle this is go back to the founding of the CBC. The founding of the CBC, 1936, I think, um, based on the founding of the BBC and all Western democracies starting to do the same thing in roughly that period of time, was a really crisp, extremely clear policy intervention that was very explicit about why they were doing it and what they were trying to accomplish. And I think here, that's what's required, right? Is that you say our purpose is to, you know, make it possible for journalists to get paid to make journalism. And then you just make a fund to give out money to do that. And I know that people, including you, and, and for good reason, are very suspicious about what that would look like in practice and what it would mean to independence and, and would journalists sort of like bias themselves and not bite the hand that feeds and et cetera. And all of that, of course, is true and it's worth like a long conversation, right? But the reality is there is always somebody who is paying the piper and that somebody is always aiming to call the tune. And I think that journalism has done a really good job of creating a culture inside journalism that is fiercely independent you know and i have ten thousand stories from the cbc and anybody who's worked for a journalistic organization has ten thousand stories right um and i think you know you would try to set up something with a lot of safeguards and you would design it as well as you could and you would design it knowing that you know, there's a gap between intent and then reality when the rubber hits the road, right? It's real people implementing things. And so they are never perfect, right? But I think if you're trying to achieve a policy objective, you have to make policy and that is how you would do it. And I think if you were to do that, it opens up, and I'm sorry, because I know you're kind of looking possibly for a short answer, but I think it opens up a whole world of ways in which you could make some, I think, strategic and potentially really helpful interventions into the marketplace, like with this market failure that we have, right? Like, I'll just sort of sketch a little bit, like, we're not making journalistic institutions anymore, right? There are no more big national behemoth journalistic institutions coming into being, right? We're making little things that are reactive to fragmented audiences. So they're smaller and they're narrower, right? There's value in that, that is not bad, right? But you might ask yourself, are institutions wanted, right? That's a policy question. Do we want you know, nation building, social cohesion, do we want these things? And if we want these things, how do we make them happen? That's one set of things that you could look at, right? You would also for sure wanna look at business model innovation, which is happening, 
and needs to be encouraged and needs to be supported, right? Or at least needs a level playing field where it's not being, um, you know, competed with by folks um, who who are getting a lot of public funding that those small organizations aren't, right? But you would want to invest in what would things look like? Like what kind of experimentation needs to happen and how would you create it? And you would have normal policy goals, right? I'll say one more thing and then I'll stop. Like back in the day of the big dominant institutions when you know the public broadcasters were massive and the newspapers were very large. Back in those days, one of the problem with those days, one of the problems with it was it, it was a, a bit of a false consensus. It was a bit of a false view you know, the, the the sort of portrait that it painted of the country, it excluded all kinds of people. Um, and so as a policy objective, you know, when you had the big behemoths, they were um, mainstream, right? Which excluded all kinds of diversity of viewpoints and identity groups and stuff like that. In a more fragmented marketplace, there can be more um, of that kind of thing. And so maybe that's a policy objective. I also have a big interest in people who aren't that interested in news because they used to consume it anyway, and now they don't. And so maybe there are ways to make sure that the bottom doesn't fall out, right? Like that low, low news interest people um, still have easy, very easy, very convenient um, access to news that um, is factual and reliable. So like what I'm doing there is I'm just sketching out there's like a whole bunch of things that you might want to set as public policy goals and then try to make real through a variety of carrots and sticks, right? Through a variety of incentives. Um, and I think that that is real work, right? And that is useful work. The government could play a very important role. And like I said, I look back to when the CBC was created, that was a brave act of policy. Like that was, that was smart and consequential and useful for the country. Um, and and I would like it um, if we were trying to be brave um, in that way now too. All right, I think that's a, a good place to close. Uh, you've given a lot of food for thought. I, I'll tell you candidly, we 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 don't disagree as much as I think you think we do. Uh, <laughs> I. I'm happy to see support and I'm happy to see the large companies provide that support. I think that happens best by making sure that we tax the hell out of the companies yeah. and, and use <laughs> and use that and use that revenue for programs that help achieve the policy goals rather than intervening in in the negotiations as as C18 envisions and then even more uh, have predetermined outcomes that do cause real harm for access to information and for the way the internet functions. But anyway, mm -hmm. I, I think we're actually both moving in that same direction. A lot of food for thought and some really great analysis. Sue, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. You're super welcome. It was very, very interesting. Thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.